Welcome to Catching Cowboys. Join Dr. Muji, a psychology professor at the University in Ohio, and her daughter, Iyabode, a research scientist in California, on a journey of how to make the most of what life throws your way. We hope to make today's podcast as informative and lighthearted as possible. So sit back and join us on this adventure. Before we get started, if you have your own comments or questions, remember to send them to catchingcurveballs at gmail.com or DM us at Catching Curveballs Podcast on Instagram. And if you like what you hear, remember to rate, review, and tell your friends, family, and coworkers to listen. Hi, mom. How goes it? Hey, my daughter. I'm doing fine. Thank you for asking. How are you? Not too bad. (laughs) We already know how we're doing because listeners, we've already been gossiping for hours before we started recording. So it's always comical when we then hit record and re-ask one another how we're doing. So yes, mom, I'm still doing excellently. (laughs) So mom, I actually came across a fascinating article that I would love to get your take on. And listeners actually send your perspective and input on this because I think all of us realize that the pandemic is a terrible event that's transpired, but it turns out that there are actually secondary detrimental consequences. And so this article titled, One Year On, Unhealthy Weight Gains, Increased Drinking Reported by Americans Coping with Pandemic Stress, showed the results of an APA Stress in America poll. I didn't receive a survey, so I wasn't part of this polling. However, the results have led to this coined term known as a secondary pandemic health crisis. And in these results, it was reported that most adults, or at least American adults, have experienced an undesired weight change, whether that's an increase or decrease, an undesired change in their weight. And for those that gained weight out of all of the total responders, I believe it was close to about 60% that had a weight change. But on average, for those who gained weight, they tended to gain almost 30 pounds, which is quite significant. I guess it depends on your baseline starting weight. However, almost 30 pounds is quite a bit to put on. Then also bothersome, about two-thirds of adults reported that they were sleeping more or less than they desired. So relative to before the pandemic, U.S. adults are sleeping far less, far more than they really would like to. They're also drinking more than before, and it was up to a quarter of all responders that stated that they were drinking far more alcohol than pre-pandemic. To add to this, about three out of 10 adults report that their mental health has worsened, and really troubling in this article was this evaluation of the effect the pandemic has had on people of color, in which it's showing that there's a disproportionate effect on that subgroup of individuals, with Hispanic adults reporting that they're most likely to have had an undesired sleep change, a reduction in their physical activity, and weight gain over the course of the pandemic. And then Black adults were the most concerned about the future. Which, really, as if a global pandemic isn't bad enough, to start to think about the additional effects beyond just loss of life or employment status or quality of life, These downstream consequences are potentially going to be longer lasting than even some of the statistics and metrics that we're currently seeing with the primary effects of the pandemic. Isn't that really terrifying to think about, mom? It is terrifying, my daughter. I mean, so many indirect effects of this global pandemic. People in every part of the world have their unique and related stories. And it's just so unfortunate. 
I completely agree. And you're right, because this survey was limited to the U.S. population, but I'd expect that globally, many people are going through the same secondary struggles, whether it's weight gain or drinking more than desired or sleeping differently or having a shift in our mental health. There has to be some sort of global trend where this is something that's ubiquitous. Okay, well, moving on to the topic for today, we are discussing microaggression which I'm not too sure how that fits in within the context of a pandemic update. Listeners, let's just pretend that this segue is far more seamless than it actually is in reality. All right, mom, can you get us started by providing a definition of microaggression? Microaggression is a subtle, often unintentional, and unconscious form of prejudice or bias. Unlike obvious or overt racism or sexism or other isms, microaggression typically is an offhanded comment, inadvertently painful joke, or even pointed insult. Microaggression might also involve micro-invalidation. And what do I mean by micro-invalidation? It is the denying or attacking of the experiences feelings or thoughts that marginalized or vulnerable people have. For instance, I'm thinking of, say, someone who is white saying they don't see color or that all lives matter, or they might actually tell one, tell someone, a marginalized person, that they're too sensitive. And there are so many other examples too. So the point I'm making is that they can be based on gender, race, ethnicity, religion, or even any other identity status. And I'm thinking of, for instance, LGBTQIA+, or maybe due to one's sexual orientation, or we can even go to the extent of maybe considering HIV status. Uh, So again, those kinds of subtle insults to an individual because they are part of a particular group that is typically a marginalized one. I love the micro terms associated with microaggression. Mom, you've just shared another one, micro-invalidation. Then I've also heard of micro-interventions. So it's almost a task of how can we scale it down to the smallest size possible? Let's get it to the micro level to fit in with this microaggression. That was a terrible joke, but in all seriousness, When it comes to microaggression, I actually didn't grow up recognizing or understanding this concept. I knew how certain comments would really make me feel, but I didn't necessarily have the terminology or understanding of the root of those comments or even fully appreciate why they made me so uneasy or so uncomfortable. In some cases too, they almost seemed like compliments or like harmless, innocuous jokes. So altogether, it would just be really confusing experiences for me. And even growing up, it wouldn't just be at the hands of other peers or even my quote-unquote friends. It would also be delivered by teachers or even adults that you look to and now retrospectively, I think, what were they thinking when they were making some of those comments to a child? And it also was compounded by the fact that it really wasn't something that I experienced only in one-on-one settings. There are times when it's been delivered in front of an entire classroom or in front of a large group of individuals. And so listeners, as a bit of a backstory, a flashback to episode one, where we did the intro to the duo, aside from my time growing up in Toronto, I also spent a large chunk of my childhood in Ohio. 
And in Ohio, the area we were in, the demographic was not necessarily um, as diverse as, let's say, where I currently live in the Bay Area. So growing up in the suburbs in Ohio, let's just say that I heard a lot of, you are so articulate, you speak so well, know really where are you actually from. Another one too would always go back to my name. So this, especially by teachers, it would be a comment to the effect of, your name is impossible to pronounce. Can I call you I? Forget even attempting to pronounce your name. Let me just call you I, the first letter of your name. Or from even peers, can I touch your hair? Or the weight, wrong person. There's so many of these comments that at the time, I really didn't recognize the potential disturbing consequences and effects they could have on me as an individual. I just took them as, like I mentioned earlier, potential compliments or jokes even. I thought they were funny in certain cases, but I recognized that they really didn't leave me feeling all that great. I didn't walk away from those interactions feeling better about myself or feeling better about how I speak or feeling better about my name. I really felt uncomfortable. And what I've noticed too, as I've gotten older, and even as just times have changed, is there's been this evolution in recent years. There's still a similar level of discomfort that I feel, but the language is a bit different because now I hear more comments to the effect of, I don't see color or we're all the same. And those still leave me with this uneasy feeling that I can't help but wonder, is the person who's saying this really cognizant of how it's coming across? Those examples I've shared are just my personal experience. Part of what's also been fascinating to learn when it comes to microaggression are the various forms that you've highlighted, mom, the forms that are experienced by so many others based on sexual orientation, even disability status. I know that I personally, and I'd argue many others, really have a lot to learn about this topic. Because part of what we want to do and be mindful of is that we're avoiding perpetrating insidious forms of bias or prejudice. And then in addition, I know it would be so valuable to learn how to actually receive and respond to those comments because the truth of the matter is that I don't see very much changing. And so understanding how to react or even how to limit the impact on our mental health and overall well-being after receiving such comments would be something that would be incredibly invaluable. Why don't we dig a bit deeper into the origin of the term? I'm guessing this wasn't a term that was around in the last century. It definitely has more of a 2000s feel to it. You are correct that uh, the concept doesn't have a long history per se, again, depending on how long long is or how short short is. It's actually a Harvard Medical School psychiatrist who came up with the term in the 70s, in the 1970s, after he had observed some kind of subtle or indirect insults between his students, his white students and his black students. But it was actually in the mid-2000 uh, that another psychologist conducted a lot of studies around the idea. Since then, say like 2007 or thereabout, it seems as if the term microaggression has become a household terminology. Is it a household term, mom? I know that maybe in our household, it might be a household term. <laughs> Listeners, maybe you can send some feedback here. Does microaggression come up at the dinner table or in your day-to-day -day interactions at home? Let us know. <laughs> 
But um, truly and importantly, there have to be consequences and effects to microaggression. I know that earlier I had mentioned that I really would walk away from certain situations and interactions with a level of discomfort that I oftentimes couldn't describe why or what exactly led to my feeling that way. I couldn't pinpoint the exact reason, but I knew there was something more to it that was really leaving me with those feelings and that sense of, wait, what just happened here? What did I just hear? So what are some of the effects of microaggression? There are several effects of microaggression. It's when it's frequent, you know, it's the occurrence when it happens too often that it becomes uh, disturbing or even very stressful for many people. Because again, we have to look at it to the extent that there could be individual differences in terms of how it would impact people. In general, as a recipient or if you're a target, of uh, microaggression, as you have alluded to earlier, you begin to wonder if the comment is intentional and how best to respond. For some, you might not want to overreact. For some, you are questioning yourself, am I being too sensitive? Am I hearing well? So those are the kinds of things that go on in one's mind. But in general, microaggression also perpetuates power imbalance, be it based on gender, race, ethnicity, religion, or other identity status. Studies have also shown that experiences of microaggression significantly predict several outcomes. For instance, greater symptoms of anxiety and depression. The APA actually had an article that described microaggression as quote unquote, death by a thousand cuts. And I think this is what they were attempting to convey that although an individual situation or an individual comment might seem harmless for the recipient, that frequent receipt of similar comments oftentimes leaves them not only feeling very disturbed, but in a place in which it's highly stressful and anxiety inducing and potentially even depressing for them. It's why it's so important for us to explore topics such as this, because we never know if we are truly the perpetrators. I know that I, as an individual, can cite countless experiences where I've been at the hand of a microaggressor, but the more that I'm aware of this phenomenon and the various dimensions that it takes and can exist in, the better I'll be at avoiding being the microaggressor. And with that, I think there are three important prongs for us to explore for the rest of this episode. The first aspect or that first prong are strategies to use to avoid being the perp. I mean, perpetrator. I'm not sure why perp came out of my mouth, but to avoid being the perpetrator is an important and critical learning aspect for all of us. The next prong is then strategies that we can incorporate as recipients to microaggressive comments, both the response that would really help a situation in particular And then even some of the protective strategies. So aside from a response in the moment, protective strategies to limit the potential repercussions that come from being the recipient of microaggressive comments. And actually, forget three prongs. I'll add one more prong. So four prongs in total. I think it would help for us to explore what we can do as bystanders. Let's get started with that first aspect. What can we do to steer clear of being the microaggressor? The following are strategies that I hope will be helpful. First, be more conscious of microaggressions. 
Also explore your biases. Reflect on the meanings and implications of what you are about to say. Don't shoot yourself in the foot as one adage goes. Get to know common examples of microaggressions. Knowledge is power when that knowledge is used and used appropriately. Another strategy is to interact with people from different communities. But it's important that we know that because you have friends that belong to marginalized communities does not excuse you when you engage in microaggressions. So be stronger than your excuses. Another strategy is to practice engaging in microaffirmations. By that, I mean acknowledge another person's value, whether small or large. Such subtle acts of inclusion and kindness goes a long way. Avoid being defensive. This wasn't a sticky situation. And finally, acknowledge the other person's perspective and reflect on their perspective. Perspective taking definitely will help. There it is. Another micro word. You dropped micro affirmations on us. So adding to that list, listeners, are you all taking notes on the micro words? I think I need to start doing the same thing. But those strategies are so impactful. And I think going back to what I was mentioning earlier, that we ultimately speaking don't want to be the perps. We don't want to be the ones who are directing microaggression to other individuals. I think it really does help to understand the examples and the forms it can take on. And as you've mentioned, just be more conscious and aware of our potential biases or even some of the implications that exist with what we're about to say. I think it's so important that you highlighted the potential value in interacting with people from different communities. But that doesn't mean it's time to start shopping for a Black friend or an LGBTQ plus one or disabled one. But if you already have them in your circle, you already have them as friends, then talk to them. Get to hear their firsthand experiences. In fact, use this podcast episode as the gateway if you need to. Mention that you were listening to Dr. Moji and Iyabade discuss microaggressions and you just were curious as to what their perspective and experiences have been. Engage with them and actually get to hear from them firsthand. Next up, let's reach for those two other prongs, the second and third ones, the receiving end elements. How do we respond to and limit the adverse effects of microaggression? Yes, my daughter, let's talk about strategies as recipients. Challenge discriminatory attitudes and behavior rather than the person. As stated in one APA article, criticize the microaggression, not the microaggressor. Explain to the person that impact is more important than intent. Because some of the time we would uh, consider and say, oh, that was not my intention. I didn't mean to hurt you. But what matters more is the impact, the effect you've had on the person. Help break the unintentional micro insults and suggest to the perpetrator who could be a student, a co-worker, or the other person to reward or reconsider comments. Finally, try to provide correct information that would challenge stereotypes and biases immediately instead of later, if possible. And there we have another micro term, micro insults. Thank you, mom. (laughs) 
I really appreciate that, especially as someone who is non-confrontational in nature. That set of strategies really resounded with me. I think to just that separation of intent from impact can be really difficult, or at least it's been difficult for me, but it is an important aspect to emphasize. Oftentimes we can excuse a person's comments by stating that, well, we know this person, we know their intent, we know that they were coming from a good place. But if the impact is so destructive and it's so detrimental, it needs to be called out. There needs to be some sort of redirect and corrective outcome that comes from that interaction with the individual. The New York Times actually has a great example response in some of these situations. So in the context of maybe you know someone really well, or maybe you don't know them that well, but just from the limited interaction you've had with them, you believe their intent was quote unquote good. Well, an example response could be, I know you didn't realize this, but when you said or did ABC, it was hurtful or offensive because of X, Y, and Z. Helping to actually educate them. And once again, going back to what you've stated, mom, focusing on the microaggression itself versus the microaggressor, making it clear to that individual that you recognize the potential intent behind their words. However, those words still had a particular impact. And once again, as someone who really struggles with confrontation in the moment, it can be so tricky to even have some of these responses ready. I know that once I walk away from a heated conversation, I can come up with a million retorts and responses. I'm the queen of composing some incredible answer. But in the moment, it can be really tough for me to do so. And I have dear friends who feel the same way. So I know it's not just exclusive to me. However, if you have some of these responses ready, or you know that the goal is to focus on what's been said versus criticizing the individual who's delivering the message, then that can be a helpful starting point in the moment and at that point in time. Something else I'd like to add to that list, although it was amazing, is just the importance of self-care. It's one thing to be able to respond or even correct the information that's been stated by another individual. There still has to be some sort of maintenance for yourself thereafter. There still has to be some level of engaging in activities that can help you rebound after that type of interaction. And some of this is just basic self-care that we should be engaging in on a day-to-day basis. But for me personally, I know that after some of those very awkward conversations in which microaggression has been thrown my way, it really helps for me to just take a long walk and clear my head. It also makes a world of a difference for me to talk it out to someone. Oftentimes in that discussion with someone after the fact, that's when my great responses come out. I'll have so many of them ready, but unfortunately I've missed the moment. All right, mom, on to the final prong. What about bystanders? What can we or others do when we witness micro insults? Bystanders have an important role in all of this. Speak from your perspective versus from the perspective of the microaggression recipient. That is, avoid speaking on behalf of the recipient of microaggression. More importantly, be an ally. An ally is the person who supports the recipient of microaggression. Allyship is on a continuum. Apathetic ally, aware ally, active ally, and advocate ally. To be a true ally would require that you lift others by advocating. You do not view venting as a personal attack. You recognize systemic inequalities. 
and realize the impact of microaggressions. You believe underrepresented people's experiences. You listen, support, self-reflect, and change. Very helpful. Okay, mom, I think we're ready for your quote for today. My quote today is by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. End of quote. Well, that's all for now. Thank you for spending time with us. Yes, we want to hear from you. Give us feedback on what you heard today and suggestions for topics you would like us to discuss in future episodes. You can email us at catchingcurveballs at gmail.com. That's catchingcurveballs, all one word, at gmail.com. Also, remember to follow us on Instagram for much more content at Catching Curveballs Podcast. That's Catching Curveballs Podcast. And as always, remember to rate, review, and tell everyone you know about the podcast. We cannot wait to connect with you soon. 